When this started, I confess I did not understand. I guess maybe that's how it all turned out to be such a mess. Welcome to the Teacher's Lounge, the space where we talk about difficult emotions, difficult experiences, the interactions that turn out to be such a mess and can too easily lead to burnout. In this space, in this Teacher's Lounge, we talk about the difficult parts of teaching in ways that make things better, make you feel better, make your school relationships better, make learning better, miraculously. What you'll hear in every episode is a story, a real story, told by a teacher in one of the many teacher support groups that I've run over the years. The story will be camouflaged to protect confidentiality. But it's not just the teacher's story I'll tell. I'll also share how I and the teachers in the teacher support group responded to the story, thought about the story, framed the story, and eventually came up with a plan of action to resolve the story. At the end of every episode, I'll share a pithy axiom for you to take away with you into your own classroom, where it might help you deal with your own difficult stories and emotions. Because teaching well is difficult, and all teachers can use this kind of caring, thoughtful, dynamic, solution-oriented support. This, my friends, is the teacher's lounge you have been wanting and needing and deserving your entire teaching life. I'm Betsy Burris. Let's get started. Summer is a physics teacher in an independent school. She is one of those people who is naturally attuned to her students, picking up on individual moods, responding to the collective vibe, solving problems by activating her vast social network, being in touch with parents, making special arrangements to accommodate everyone's every need, always saying yes and always making it work at the highest possible level of quality. As a result, no surprise here, she is popular and successful and she's emotionally absorbent. So when what she called the honeymoon period of the first few weeks of the new academic year seemed to be over, she found herself feeling a little overwhelmed. One of her students had just told her that he was deeply depressed. Another shared a rumor about a disturbing incident at a party over the weekend. She had just heard one of her colleagues yelling at his class. Yep, the honeymoon period was over. As if all this wasn't enough, the students in her directed study filed in on this particular day, just radiating angst. Absorbent as she was, Summer found herself filled with sadness and anxiety, a big bubble of emotion that she had no idea how to manage. But manage it she did, in a totally unhelpful way. It happened when Clarice, a student in one of Summer's classes, showed up for some help on a physics assignment that was already a week late. Clarice sat down, opened her computer, and stared at the screen. Summer asked her to talk her way through the first problem. Silence. Summer prompted Clarice with a concept that was supposed to get her started. Silence and a confused look. The bubble of emotion inside Summer began to expand, threatening to pop. Feeling a spike of anxiety that she might actually lose it, just like her colleague down the hall, Summer clamped down. Okay, she thought to herself, time to get aggressive. To Clarice, she said with undisguised impatience, This problem is not that hard, Clarice. I expect you to finish it before the end of directed study. If you don't, I'm going to have to give you a zero for the entire assignment, which won't help your overall grade, obviously. Mic drop. Summer returned to her work and her bubble of barely containable emotion. As for Clarice, 
She sat silently with the computer open in front of her. When the bell marking the end of the period finally rang, Clarice closed her computer and left without a word. The physics problem remained unsolved. Oh boy, standoff. Summer threatened Clarice with a consequence she, Summer, did not want to meet out. A zero for an assignment that Summer really wanted Clarice to complete and get credit for. And Clarice called her bluff. Imagine how Summer, who is accustomed to understanding her students, to aligning with them, to being liked, respected, and successful, imagine how she felt that night after work. Terrible. Like she had failed. Like she was at the end of her rope, and there were still countless weeks to go in the school year. Like she couldn't go on. Like she was a terrible teacher. Like Clarice was a terrible student. Like she, Summer, was so dragged down by others and her own emotions that she couldn't bob up to the surface of the ocean of her life. What the heck had gone wrong? How did it happen? What is wrong with me? Summer asked herself. Such good questions. Well, the first two, what had gone wrong and how did it happen? Those are great questions. The last question, what is wrong with me, is not a good question. Why? Because it's a leading question. It assumes an answer from the start, that something was, quote, wrong with Summer. This is not a good place to begin doing what I call emotion work, which is the work of figuring out what our interactions and negative emotions might mean. Emotion work entails looking at emotional and relational data without judgment, without blame, and with curiosity. Because you know there are good reasons for every behavior and every emotion. You just have to figure out what the reasons are. So let's dive in. What had gone wrong? How did it happen? Remember that summer is absorbent, that is, she is an empath. Interesting. I looked up empath online to make sure it was a word, and I discovered that it tends to be used in science fiction. It describes people with a supernatural power of sensing other people's emotions and mental states. Ha ha ha. A characteristic of fantastic alien life forms. Not teachers, not regular human beings. But of course, teachers and other regular human beings do have this superpower. Having this superpower can be super difficult. That's because empathy ignores boundaries. It allows other people's emotions in. It allows, to be blunt, a type of emotional merging that makes it hard to separate yourself from someone else and adds other people's emotional burdens to your own. Result? A fantastic ability to relate to other people and, potentially, an all-too-human experience of overwhelmedness. So here are the emotions Summer might have taken in on this particular day. Depression. Anxiety, horror, and helplessness about a disturbing incident at a party. Uncontrollable anger angst, from Clarice, confusion and impotence, and topping it all off, Summer's own anxiety about keeping it all together. Did I miss anything? Now, as an empath, Summer had a way of managing her emotions. Whatever problems she took on from other people, she went right to work solving. A depressed student, she'd find him a therapist. Disclosure of misbehavior at a party, she'd activate her network of teachers and parents and get to the bottom of it. That kind of thing. Seems as though, through the honeymoon period, Summer was just humming along, taking in emotions, taking on problems, and offloading those emotions by solving the problems, efficiently and effectively and quite satisfyingly. But today, for some reason, she hit a wall. It was like, up until now, her system had been able to process the lactic acid building up in her empathy muscles, heart and liver, 
humming away, taking care of the excess emotions Summer routinely took in. But today, today the lactic acid buildup became toxic. She couldn't go on. And the focus of her attention was the frustrating interaction with Clarice. Of course, the threat to give Clarice a zero just made matters worse. Summer's decision to get aggressive, to play hardball with Clarice, clearly didn't work. Clarice was having none of it. Classic power struggle, escalated by a threat that Summer did not want to carry out, meaning it was basically an empty threat, which, if you're going to threaten someone, is the worst kind. And it backfired. Clarice's response to Summer's aggression was passive aggression. She sent the anger and frustration in Summer's threat right back at Summer. By doing nothing. By letting Summer know, through her own inaction and indifference, who was actually boss just then. Hint, it was not Summer. I'm guessing Summer was hoping that getting aggressive in directed study would cow Clarice into just complying, which would have made everything so much easier, for Summer at least. Instead, Summer brought this interaction home with her, and it just exhausted her more as she couldn't sleep that night for fuming about it. Fortunately for Summer, her teacher support group met the very next day. She was sleep-deprived and overwhelmed and worried, and still pretty darned raw about her interaction with Clarice. We could tell by her frustrated check-in. It's not enough that there are students who are depressed and endangering themselves, she complained. I have to deal with someone who just doesn't feel like doing the work? Really? What is Clarice doing in directed study if she doesn't want to do the work? I do not have the energy for this. Good question, Summer. That is, the question about what Clarice was doing in directed study if she wasn't willing to do physics. What I love about this about students who go to school and just fold their arms and refuse to participate, is that they're drawing attention to an important reality. They understand they need to be at school and they don't want to be there. That is, they're conflicted. And conflicted students are very interesting people. In the teacher support group, we decided to start with Clarice's resistance, her conflict. The teachers in the support group wanted to know what might Clarice be conflicted about? That is, why did she voluntarily walk into directed study for help from Summer on a physics problem and then refuse to work on the problem? A word about the connection between resistance and conflict. There's a psychoanalyst and author whom I just love named Martha Stark, who writes about resistance in therapy. She points out about therapy patients the same thing I just pointed out about students. And that is because I poached her idea that when patients make the effort to go to the therapy office and then spend their time and money resisting the therapist, something interesting is going on. Stark claims it's conflict. Not necessarily conflict with the therapist, or in our case, the teacher, although of course it could be, but it could also be internal conflict. Commitment to this and that to two opposite goals or feelings or desires that have each other in such a chokehold that the patient or the student simply cannot make a move. Their resistance in the room, the therapist's office or the classroom, is evidence of this internal impasse. And the emotions that arise in the therapist or the teacher are similar to the emotions that the patient or student herself has. So in order to make guesses about a student's internal conflict, a teacher can always start with her own emotions and then make the flip. What I mean by making the flip is that the teacher, once she has labeled the feelings she has about a classroom incident, can then wonder, might my student have these same feelings? If so, why might she? 
Of course, Summer's teacher support group asked her these questions. What was Summer feeling? Exhausted, very anxious, helpless, frustrated. Could Clarice have been feeling the same way? Yes, of course. What might have been making her feel exhausted, very anxious, helpless, and frustrated? Summer realized she didn't know. The group asked questions about Clarice. Is she a good physics student? What is she normally like in physics class? Is her resistance surprising? In the past, when Summer asked Clarice to work out a physics problem, what did Clarice do? Summer told us that Clarice seems to be an average physics student who tends to be quiet in class. She doesn't normally volunteer, and Summer could not remember having called on Clarice at all so far this school year. It's only been a few weeks, Summer reminded us, so I don't actually know much about Clarice. And then a light bulb went off. I need more data, Summer exclaimed. There's backstory here. That is, there's a crucial concept that Summer and her teacher support group colleagues know well and apply often. The concept of what I call emotional and relational data. You might think I'm just piggybacking on the popular trend these days of data-driven instruction, and I am. I mean, why stop at numbers and graphs? Why not gather in other sorts of data that will help you figure out what your students need and whether or not your teaching aligns with those needs? These other sorts of data, as I see them, are emotions and behaviors, the evidence people everywhere all the time offer on how they manage their emotions and relationships, their lives, their learning. These data, emotions, and behaviors can be extraordinarily accurate if you know how to frame and organize them. That's what the emotion work that's done in teacher support groups is all about. As you might remember, Summer Support Group already asked about emotional data. Summer shared how she felt about the incident with Clarice, exhausted, anxious, helpless, and frustrated, and the group surmised that Clarice might very well feel the same way. And Clarice's stark refusal to even start working the problem Summer had assigned to her, even though she herself came to Summer's classroom for help, is nothing if not resistance. So Summer had emotional data and behavioral data, and she had the beginning of a guess about what might have been going on inside Clarice, conflict but she needed more. How did Summer want to go about collecting more emotional and relational data, the group asked her. Summer said she wanted to meet with Clarice, maybe during lunch, maybe during directed study, whenever it was convenient for Clarice, to ask her a few questions. What would those questions be, the group asked. I want to know what it's like for Clarice in physics class, Summer said. I want to know if she likes physics or hates it or is just eh. I want to ask her, what happened when I asked you to work that problem during directed study? I want to interview her, Summer exclaimed, but I don't want to just interrogate her. I want to try to get her. And then, if I can make a good guess about her resistance during directed study, about the internal conflict she might feel, I can genuinely apologize about my incredibly uninformed and unhelpful response to her. Nice. I love it that Summer didn't decide to just apologize and be done with it. I love it that she wanted to contextualize her apology, wrap it in evidence that she actually understood and cared about Clarice. There's an apology that will land in all the right ways. Before we ended the group meeting, we talked about how best to characterize internal conflict. This is Martha Stark again. She recommends making conflict statements. Conflict statements follow a bit of a formula that's super simple. You say to someone, you want X, but you don't want X. Or, you want X, yet you don't want Y, which is a natural consequence of X. Or, you want X and you want Y, which is the opposite of X. 
Got that? <laughs> it's sounding a little like physics now, isn't it? So, for example, you want to be alone, but you don't want to be alone. You want X, but you don't want X. Or you want to get the job, yet you don't want to do the job. You want X, yet you don't want Y, which is the natural consequence of X. Or you want to be seen as independent and nonconformist, and you want to go to the prom, which you see as the most conformist thing in the world. You want X and you want Y, which is the opposite of X. Basically, you figure out what the two warring factions inside someone might be and put them next to each other in a sentence connected by but, and, or yet. You share that statement and see what the person says. They might agree with you and feel immediately enlightened, or at least inclined to talk a little bit about what that internal conflict is like for them. Or the person might disagree with you, which is fantastic because by correcting you, they get closer to understanding their own conflict and you get more accurate data about them. Bottom line is you make a good guess based on the data you've managed to gather. The hope is that your good guess will yield more conversation, more data, and more understanding, as well as a closer connection and more attuned teaching and learning. Eureka! So Summer did. Talk with Clarice, that is. The next week, when the teacher support group reconvened, Summer updated us. I sat down with Clarice, and the first thing I did was to say, I'd love to interview you. Summer told us that Clarice was a little cautious at first. Clarice admitted that she used to like physics, that she was good at it, but she doesn't like it anymore. She told me, said Summer, that she's a really good writer, that she loves writing because it's private and personal. Physics, she said, is too right and wrong, and liking it is too nerdy. She did admit that she's conflicted about it. Oh, what's the nature of her conflict? I asked Summer. The conflict statement I tried with her was something like, you're good at physics, but don't want to be good at it. She revised it to something like, I'm good at physics, but don't want to be seen as a geek. I wondered out loud, blurted out really, if she wanted to be seen at all. That's when she started to cry. Gasps all around the table. Summer continued, turns out Clarice is having a hard time at home. She's been fighting a lot with her parents and actually got kicked out of the house the night before our incident in directed study. Oh, so it's not just about physics. It's about attachment, about parent figures, about being seen inaccurately and the desperate need to be seen accurately, about independence and dependence, about sadness and anxiety, about angst and exhaustion and helplessness and frustration. These problems did not go away for Clarice just because she met with Summer, but the resistance, at least for a minute, did go away. Clarice was able to open up to an empathic adult, to tell her truth, and to be seen accurately and caringly. I'm guessing that was really important for Clarice. And for Summer? Summer was psyched. She was all ready to take on Clarice's problems. She told us she contacted Clarice's school counselor and checked in with some of her teachers. She wanted to get in touch with Clarice's parents, but hadn't had time to figure out how to do that yet. In short, Summer went into superhero mode, which, as we know, is Summer's preferred method for managing her empathy and the feelings it brings to her. Fortunately, the group swooped in. If you want to avoid getting overwhelmed again, one of the group members said, you'd better get back into your own garden, Summer. Meaning Summer needed to get out of Clarice's business and stick with her own, teaching physics in a way that Clarice could make use of, advising Clarice if and when Clarice came to her for advice, letting Clarice manage her own life, if only to let Clarice develop the self-management skills she'll need when high school and summer, 
her teacher, not the season, are well behind her. But also to make teaching sustainable for summer by setting boundaries and honoring them. Here's the deal. When Summer steps out of her garden, her business, and into Clarice's, she definitely makes herself feel better. She manages her anxiety by taking action. That's good, right? For Summer and for Clarice? Nah. Well, okay, it can feel good in the short term. Summer can feel empowered and Clarice might feel cared for. But by taking on all the power, by being a superhero, Summer tilts the relational balance. When she's uber-competent, someone else has to be incompetent. In this case, that would be Clarice. And Clarice cannot afford to be incompetent. She needs help and support, surely, and asking what help and support Clarice might need is important for Summer to do. But Clarice also needs to be competent so she can manage her life now and going forward. As a developmental partner, Summer is obligated to find that balance between her own competence and the development of Clarice's. This is not easy for a problem solver, a fixer, a, might as well say it, a savior. The group knew that. So did Summer. We talked about Summer's need to process the emotions she took in as an empath and encouraged her to step up the self-care and to continue leaning on us to care for her. Because sometimes self-care just is not enough. We also agreed that one of the best ways to manage empathy is to respect boundaries. To feel, yes, but to remember where you end and another begins. To notice when you're helping others really just to help yourself. To stop and look at another and ask about her in order to support her processing of her own emotions. Again, not necessarily easy, but essential. A lot went on in this story of Summers. Empathy went on, and boundary violations went on, and resistance went on, and repair went on. And in trying to understand Summer's story, I used a few different frames and metaphors. One is resistance and the good possibility that resistant behavior is evidence of internal conflict. Another is making the flip, or labeling your own emotions, and then wondering if and why your student or anybody else might have those same emotions. Another is the garden, your personal space that is encircled by a garden wall or your own personal boundaries. Another is teachers as developmental partners or people who are charged with balancing between their own competence and the cultivation of their students' competence. And finally, empathy as a superpower that requires especially strong boundaries and a healthy emotional processing system. Any of these frames would make a good axiom for this story. But I'm going to go with yet another one, the concept of emotional and relational data, a concept that is fundamental to emotion work because you can't do the work without the data. And it's the frame Summer herself chose because there's a tiny twist to this story. It is not what happened to Summer. It is what Summer kept from happening. When Summer told us this story, what she actually said was, so there was Clarice sitting in front of me in directed study, staring at her computer screen. In the past, I would have thought, I'll just get more aggressive. But this time I thought, I need more data. So I interviewed her right then and there. An important little insertion here, Summer was a multi-year veteran of teacher support groups. She would tell you, if you could ask her, that she would never have pivoted with Clarice in this way if she hadn't spent so much time thinking psychodynamically about her students. This was excellent work. So that's our axiom for today. Look for the emotional and relational data. Notice your own and others' behaviors. 
Look inside yourself at your emotions. Label them. Lay all this out on a table, metaphorically speaking, so you can scrutinize it and wonder about it on your own, with someone else who has a psychodynamic mindset, or if you're lucky, with an astute and caring and psychodynamically minded group of colleagues. What do your emotions and behaviors suggest about you? What do they suggest about your student? What do they suggest you do next? And if you determine that you simply do not have enough data to understand a disturbing experience, get more. Ask with curiosity and openness and faith that all people, even resistant students, want and need to be seen and heard accurately. I want to thank the teacher whose story I just told, You Know Who You Are, for their generosity and wisdom and commitment to becoming an ever better teacher. You rock. Here are two more people who rock my endlessly patient and talented audio editor, Julian Andrakai, and my brother, Tom Burris, whose song Lifetime from his amazing album Jabbering Trout, You've Got to Check It Out, ushers us into and out of the teacher's lounge. Also, my editors, May Burris-Wells, Brad Wells, Julia Bowen, Kim Nickel, and Geraldine Shun. Thank you, one and all. If you are a teacher with a story, I'd love to hear it. You can contact me at my website, teachingthroughemotions.com. That's one word, teachingthroughemotions, and you spell through the long way, no shortcuts. Click on the podcast, then on Let's Get Started, and send me an email. I mean it. Suffering in silence gets you nowhere. Telling your story is a first step towards understanding and relief. Contact me. Come on into the teacher's lounge. You will feel better. 